In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Christ is in our midst. Today, we commemorate, as you may have heard in some of the hymns, the Holy Fathers, there were 630 of them, of the Fourth Ecumenical Council in Chalcedon in the fourth century. This was a very important council, although all seven certainly were important because they were convened or they were called together to address serious issues, serious challenges to the faith, serious heretical positions taken by heretical individuals, many cases, clergymen, priests or bishops in the church. And so these councils were convened to bring together the body of the church in the bishops and priests in a conciliar way to address these issues, to discuss them, to put forth and express the truth of the faith that was handed down to them from Christ through his apostles all the way down to us today. So we are first and foremost thankful for their witness, for their, and I say this not as defining who we are in our jurisdiction or our confession of faith, but in the true sense or in the definition of the word for their orthodox expression of the faith. It's as important today as it was then. Now one thing to point out before I continue on, because I've been thinking a lot about this this week, especially about how these things come to pass, how these, these uh, synods, these councils come to pass. At that time, we must remember that there wasn't the modes of communication that we have today. So when heresies, when, when disputes came up or when false teaching or distorted teaching or confusing teaching took place in some place in the church, it took months before this got back to or circulated around, years before it was communicated and addressed, and maybe decades before a council or a convocation, a convening group body of the of the fathers of the church or the uh, authorities and the leaders of the church were called together to address this. So you can imagine that sometimes, and in many instances throughout the history of the church, these heresies, these distortions took root in individual communities. So it was important to convene, to address these issues, but it was also important to communicate what the truth is. And that's why I think in today's times, we, and when I say we, all of us, including clergy alike, 
become a bit lax in response to these distortions or these challenges or these confusing messages about the faith because it's all out there. Any one of us can go and find what the teaching of the church is. And so we oftentimes allow this to be the method to communicate or rather to address these issues that come up. And I tell you, that's not the best way because as we all know from from our own experiences, not everything that we see on the internet or we read or we hear is correct. And so we need to have the communication of the truth, the teaching of the faith. And that is my responsibility. I know that and I accept that. And I ask for your prayers in that regard and for your encouragement because it's important for all of us to know what the teaching and the, tr the teaching of the, the faith and the truth of our church, what it teaches is. And so I, I say that I will endeavor to communicate that more clearly and, and especially on our own website and in our own communications and even here from the altar because it's important to do so. Now I say all this because that's why we commemorate the fathers of these ecumenical councils throughout the year. So we can be reminded of the issues that the church was dealing with so many hundreds, over a thousand years ago, that are still relevant today. In this case, the fathers of the Fourth Ecumenical Council, which was a council that we know of in Chalcedon or Chalcedon, were dealing with the issue of who Jesus was, who Jesus is, and who he is in relation to us as his creation. And there exists today numerous groups and confessions of faith and religions that are not Christian religions who preach a distorted and incorrect teaching of the person of Jesus Christ. One of the foundations, the tenets of our faith as Christians is the fact that God became one of us, became a human. This is the incarnation. This is why we celebrate so much leading up to Christmas or the nativity, the incarnation. This is why we commemorate the Theotokos. In fact, the word and the title of Theotokos came from this discussion. Everything is about who Jesus is and who he is in relation to each and every one of us. St. John, when he wrote in his gospel, the very gospel passages that we read during Pascha in the, in the Holy Week, at the end of Holy Week, the word became, the word meaning the logos, became a human being and full of grace and truth. The word lived among us we saw his glory, the glory which he received as the Father's only Son. One thing to point out, because I hear this oftentimes, we see in English the Word, the Word of God, and we think right away, especially in this time and in this part of our world, that it's Scripture, right? And it, and it is the Word of God, Logos. But Logos 
in its use in Greek and in the New Testament is talking about Jesus Christ as the Word of God. And it's important to know that distinction because that very seemingly innocuous distinction is what leads to these misunderstandings at the very least of who Jesus is. We diminish by doing so his divinity at times and his humanity at other times. Ologos, the Word of God is Jesus Christ himself. When, we when I just carried the gospel out, it's reflecting or it's, it's representing Christ. The Word of God is Jesus Christ. It's not so you can understand or, or see that we're bringing out Scripture. Certainly I am. I'm carrying the Scriptures. But the Logos is Jesus Christ himself. And this is who John himself is speaking about. St. Paul also writes about the Incarnation in many of his epistles. In Galatians chapter 4, he says, When the right time fully, finally came, God sent his own Son, who came as the son of a human mother and lived under the Jewish law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might become God's sons or God's children. So to question the truth of the incarnation of God becoming one of us, fully human, fully a man in Jesus Christ, that is the full of humanity of Christ is to put under question one standing in Christianity. It really questions if we are truly living a Christian life. Anyone who acknowledges that Jesus Christ came as a human being has the spirit that comes from God. Anyone who acknowledges that Jesus Christ came as a human being has the spirit who comes from God, but anyone who denies this about Jesus does not have the spirit from God. Again, John, who spoke quite a bit about this in one of his epistles. Now, let's move forward to the epistle that we heard today, Paul's letter to Titus, one of his, one of his um, disciples, if you will. St. Paul said that, that when in the church we have these discussions, these dissensions, these disagreements, in his words to Titus, he's laying down the law which divides truth from error. In the, in the Greek, it says, in the Greek, translation of the Greek rather, Paul wants Titus to be constantly occupied in doing good works. And in the Greek, being constantly occupied means the same as standing before a shop as a tradesman to sell goods. You've all seen that, especially when you go to other countries in particular, how they come out of their shops to sell their goods. It suggests being honest in offering things for sale in the market. So not only are you selling your goods, it suggests that you are being honest. This is the word that's used about constantly occupied in doing good works. So Paul wants Titus to do everything that he's doing as a leader in the church that is excellent. 
to be excellent in his ministry, in his expression of the truth. Don't just go halfway. Don't water it down. Don't forget this and forget that. Be excellent in conveying the truth. Another way to say it is he wants to keep the church honest. So Paul then goes through, if you heard the epistle reading this morning from Titus, he quickly lists what is not the Christian truth. Pointless speculations. He says the same thing to Timothy. So it must be that Titus and Timothy in particular were dealing with these very issues in the churches that they were leading, these pointless speculations. Don't go in for disputes which words are used as weapons. All this leads to is envy and rivalry and quarrels and suspicions that the other side has no morals. The opposition is demonized and the self-righteous become unreal, unable to live up to the very standards that they set themselves. Paul dismisses genealogies. False teachers waste time on myths and genealogies. He dismisses quarrels. He dismisses all of these stupid controversies, as he says. They're a waste of time. He warns us to shun quibbles and disputes about the law. These are useless, as he says, and could do no good to anyone. And then he, finally he says, a person who disputes the truth and will not change is self-condemned. So Paul is laying out here in this particular passage, and he does so in others, what we as followers of Christ need to be focused on in our own journey, in our own walk. And leaders in the church should be focused on as well in the conveying, in the witnessing to the truth. Don't get caught up in all these discussions and disagreements and false genealogies, as he says, and disputes. Continue to preach the truth. Now he goes on. Let's, let's look at the gospel for just a moment and then I want to bring this all together. He's, in, in the gospel, we heard about you are the light of the world. And remember, Jesus also said to the disciples, you are the salt of the earth to season and to, to bring to life, to, to put forth the teaching of the church. As we heard, as we hear in the baptism, the, the gospel in the baptism, to go make disciples of all nations and to teach them all that I have commanded you to teach them to observe, to live out, to follow all that I have commanded you. Being salt and light is just this. They're using these, he's using these, um, these examples of, of things that people can understand, but he's speaking about us as Christians in this world, to be salt and to be light. He tells us that we have to live above the world and away from it. You don't put a candle 
under a bushel, un under a basket, because it, it can't be seen, obviously. So he, he says, let your light shine in the sight of men so that seeing your good works, they can give praise to your Father who is in heaven. It's pointless to say how wonderful it is to be a follower of Christ, to talk about all these wonderful things, being a Christian of the Orthodox confession of faith for us as Orthodox Christians, if we don't show other people what our faith contains, what it means, what it means to live as a Christian. And what it contains is an ethic which calls us to act correctly, just as we believe correctly, to act correctly, to think straight, to believe straight, to act straight. That's what orthodox means, and that is the orthodox Christian rule of life. And this is what Paul is saying in his epistle. And then one more thing about this gospel. Jesus goes on to say that he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it, is the word, or annul it, or, or do away with it. But what he is pointing to, and this is the, the essence, this is the message of this gospel, what he's pointing to is the law of love. Remember, he gave two new commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The law of love, the law which is shown by his voluntary crucifixion and by his glorious third day resurrection. And then he established through this a new relationship, a new covenant with God and his creation. And Paul was a faithful great teacher, even though he himself was a persecutor of Christians and participated in the stoning and the death of St. Stephen. So our Lord uses these examples and these analogies, or these examples and these expressions to direct us, our attention, to how we, with love, should respond, should show and shine our light and reflect our good works, which is a, which is a gift, a fruit of salvation, which is a fruit of a relationship with Christ. In both the epistle and the gospel, we are directed to look at our own works and our own deeds. Ultimately, this is the way that we manifest. This is the way that we show. This is the way that we, as followers of Christ, reflect, show, witness Him to others and to give a small vision of the heavenly kingdom. If the kingdom of God does not dwell richly within each and every one of us, how can we then manifest it to others? And the kingdom of God is meant to dwell richly in each of us by the grace of the Holy Spirit, the very same grace that we received at our baptism, at our chrismation, that we receive in every liturgy through the Eucharist, that we pray for and we receive when we bring our tears of repentance in the mystery of confession, that we invoke in every worship service of our faith. That is why the Lord says, the kingdom of God is within you. It's up to us to cultivate the kingdom of God within each and every one of us. Either we will cultivate it 
or we will culti- either we will cultivate the kingdom of God or we will cultivate the opposite, which is the spirit of this world. When we cultivate the kingdom through humility, as we've heard in some of the previous gospel passages these previous weeks, then the Holy Spirit comes to water us, to fill our souls, to nourish us, to strengthen us, so that we too may speak the truth of our faith in love. It is from Him and Him alone that we receive this divine life. But when we cultivate the spirit of this world through our pride, our love of sins, and our neglect of God, we produce death within ourselves. And this spiritual death is spread to those around us. We do not shine a light. We shine darkness. So let us ponder on these things. Let us remember, let us give thanks to the Holy Fathers throughout the history of the church who defended the faith, who expressed the true faith. We also commemorate today the great martyr Marina, a third century saint, once again a young woman who gave her life for the faith. She had only been a Christian for a short period of time in her life before she was martyred. But yet in her martyrdom, and speaking of baptism, she was to be, after numerous tortures, boiled in a vat of hot water. And her prayer was that that vat, that that vessel that was going to be in the minds of those pagans the place of her death would be a font, that the waters would be waters of baptism, that she would be baptized in the Holy Spirit in the very same place that others thought would be her death. This is faith. This is witnessing the faith. This is witnessing the truth. Marina gave her life to witness the truth. How shall we respond when we are faced with challenges to our faith, with distortions to the truth? This is the question that I leave you with as you ponder on this gospel and this epistle, as we remember the witness of the Holy Fathers, and as we commemorate the witness and the martyrdom of the great martyr, St. Marina. To all glory goes to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.